welcome to the Rock Christian Church podcast. Today's message is Beyond Belief by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, you're always speaking and it's a privilege to hear your voice. And so right now, Holy Spirit, we know you're here. Isaiah says that as the rain and the snow fall and soak into the earth, so the word of the Lord goes forth and does not return void. So I pray this morning as your word goes forth, that it wouldn't return void, but would soak into our hearts, Lord, I pray. In your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles uh, this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be uh, at chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. Uh, I don't know, does anybody else here enjoy wildlife documentaries? I'm actually a bit of a fan of wildlife documentaries. Yeah, me too. Uh, If only David Attenborough, who is both a naturalist and a staunch atheist, if only he knew how he's unpacking the glory of God uh, each and every time he does one of these documentaries. Uh, I've been watching a few again recently. Uh, But if there is, uh, most people here I don't know that I don't like cats. I don't like cats, but I have some kind of an awe and a respect for lions. I don't know if anybody else uh, uh, might be in that boat. Uh, uh, somebody I knew that I used to, uh, back when I was in Tasmania, they went on a safari uh, in Africa and they're going through it all, and they were told, listen, uh, the lions and all of the big cats and stuff, you know, they don't see the vehicle as a threat, uh, but they do see the shape of man as a threat. So we just want to tell you, take your photos sitting down, don't stand up. And and he would recall that we came across a, a pride of lions and the big fellas there, because uh, this is what I like about lions, the women do all the work and the men get all the glory. Uh, that's, that's, that's biblical, I think, Terry. I think that... I could think that I think they could even be biblical. Uh, but anyway, the big fellas there eating and, and somebody stood up to take a photo and, and the lion stopped eating and looked at them for a moment and the safari guide started the car and took off. Uh, you don't mess with these guys. But, you know, I've watched a lot of documentaries about lions and I appreciate them and, and I've seen how they hunt. I've seen them take on crocodiles. These, these things are fearless. You know, they hunt in packs and, and nobody messes with the big fella, right? He's kind of... And then when they fight, and, and over a period of time, I had a lot of people tell me a lot about lions. I had watched a lot. I learned a lot. But then there was a, a zoo in Tasmania, and we're really creative in Tasmania. When we want to name a zoo, we come up with really, really, really graphic names like Zoodoo. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's still there. <laughs> it's not. Um, but anyway, we op- they opened a zoo in Richmond, Tasmania, called Zudu, and they had a range of animals there, and they finally got a lion there. And I can guarantee you, the first thing me and the boys and the family are doing, we're, we're heading down to Zudu. We want to see this lion. And, and we've walked around, we've looked at all these different animals. You know, you've got the emus poking their head through the bus where you're trying to feed them. And then we walk down this kind of coral thing, and you come around, and there's a big pane of glass, and there's this lion. And two things. I praise God for the thickness of that glass right there and then. Second thing was, I was just captivated. Absolutely all. I just stood there watching and looking. This animal was looking at me like, yeah, step on the other side of the glass, champ. Well, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. But uh, cats shouldn't eat people, this. this is a, but the difference between over here, see, over here I'd heard about lions and and over here, I kind of had a head knowledge of lions, and, I, and everybody else had told me how majestic they are, and I was really interested in them and really liked them. But something happened over here, and the only way I can describe the difference between over there and over here is presence and experience. John writes his gospel 
He tells us why he writes his gospel. You see, John writes his gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, I've written these things. He says, if I told you, basically, he says, if I told you everything Jesus had done, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to be able to record what he had done. So he goes on and says, I've written these things that you may believe. That's a big word. Hang on to that word, believe. We're not going to let that go today as we're talking about beyond belief. Uh, but the whole... The whole heart of John in all of his gospel is to move people from this point over here. And, and I found that when, when you're reading the synoptic gospels and, and when you're reading the gospel of John, everything that Jesus did, every word that he spoke, every person that he interacted with, every miracle was all about moving people from here, from some kind of dry uh, head knowledge about God and abstract knowledge of God to a place of adoration to a place where we are experiencing a person. You see, over here we might have opinions about Jesus. Over here we may have heard, we may have many people that have taught. Over here you can go to Bible college. I've seen it. I've seen people come out of Bible college and have no closer relationship with the God who spoke the universe into existence. If you're new here, or maybe you've been here for a while, and I have to affirm it, but I want to let you know today, our heart here as a leadership, our heart here as a church, is is to always move people from this place over to this place. And the difference between there and here is experience and its presence. And a couple of things before we begin this morning. First thing is, uh, over here, uh, all too often you go from here to, in the video I'll show this better, we kind of drift away. And there's people in this room that will know of people that have drifted away, that have kind of, over here it's, it's not long before the pressures or the allurement of this life kind of just lead us away from God and next thing you know we turn around and there's distance. I want to be clear this morning that you never, ever drift over here. You must intentionally make a decision to go from there. To, and the next thing I want to make clear this morning is that from there to here is really easy. We always think that we have to be holy and super. And often we, we read church history and we think that this place over here, that nobody could ever live here because this is only reserved for the super, super anointed. You know, the guys with the cream coats that go like this. But, but the really, you know, this is, only for the, this is only for the John Wesleys. This is only for the Smith Wigglesworths. This is, you know, the, the kind of super anointed guys. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. It's not the message of Christ. Jesus came to declare nobody has to live here anymore. Each and every one of you should be living over here. Living in the experiential presence of an almighty God. That's not about goosebumps in your hair standing. That's none of that sort of stuff. It's about knowing the reality of an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. All too often, we either start here and drift away. I've met far too many people that are here and like to visit. We're kind of content with an intermediary kind of, we're kind of halfway. We're kind of, you know, well, I know a lot about Jesus. And every now and again, I visit over here. Like Jesus is in some kind of zoo and we go and visit him for a moment or two. Today, my heart is to flick a switch. And to begin a journey. For those that were here last week, 
uh, you get the lowdown that uh, after we finish the book of Revelation, we're going to go through a series on the Exodus. And I can already hear God whispering, saying, you're going to have to back it up with the book of Joshua, for those that are wondering. Because the, uh, here's, if you want to sum up the book of Exodus, it sounds like this. He draws us out that he may draw us in. The story of the people of God throughout Exodus is that God would draw them out from Egypt. He draws us out of the world that he may draw us to himself. And God, I believe, wants to bring every single one of us into the fullness that he has for us. My heart here is not, uh, my heart has never been to fill a room with people. My heart is, God, please use us here to fill the people in the room. And that's what Replenish is all about, that we would live a life that is full in the presence of God. And today, as we work our way through chapter 11 of John, it's an amazing chapter. But John, uh, Jesus, we will end today with a question that Jesus asks a lady. The lady's name is Martha. He asks her a very haunting question that I believe applies to us. But let's set the scene first. If you've got your Bibles and you've started in uh, John chapter 11, we're going to start at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. For those that we hear for the first week, we looked at Mary and Martha and how important it is for us to find our place at the feet of Christ. And we realise uh, that Martha uh, was not chastised because she was working, but because she was troubled and anxious about many things. Say Martha. Verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet. It's a really interesting part of the gospel that John would mention that. Uh, it must have been common knowledge what Mary did because John doesn't write it in his gospel until the next chapter. So he must be appealing to a general knowledge that people had of the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Verse 3, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. And I'll unpack that in a moment so that the son of God may be glorified through it. What on earth First of all, would John mean by glorified? And what does Jesus mean when he says glorified and God will be glorified? Uh, whenever John in his gospel references God being glorified, the Son being glorified, it's a reference to God uh, unveiling and revealing and disclosing himself. What Jesus knows is the miracle that's about to take place is going to unveil the immense glory of God in such a way. It's, it's kind of like over here, remember the lion? Over here, I kind of had a distant knowledge, and, but all of a sudden over here, there was just a reverence because there was a different revelation. So it is with God, he unpacks. In the outset of this, we could say, sometimes people might say, well, you know, God deliberately made Lazarus sick so that he could exercise his glory. That's not it. What Jesus is referencing here is an opportunity and an occasion has come about when God's glory can be displayed. Jesus says, it is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified. Let's keep reading after Jesus says that. John tells us in verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
okay, John, why are you telling us that? Well, the reason John wants to make <laughs> it's kind of a disclaimer for the next verse, because the next verse says, so when he heard Jesus, that, that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but we've read John chapter 11. We could read the whole story now. We know everything that's going to unfold. We know everything that's going to happen. It's all going to work out good because Lazarus is going to be raised from the dead. But if you were reading this and you didn't have that hindsight, you might pause long enough to go, hang on a second, that is rather confusing and somewhat callous of Jesus to wait another two days. You see, what the sisters have done is perhaps what we might find ourselves doing throughout the course of life. Uh, Instances arise, circumstances arise, challenges arise, and we send word out to Jesus. Jesus, I've got this problem in my life. Jesus, I need this healing. Jesus, my marriage. And how many people have experienced times in their lives when it feels like God has turned his hearing aids off for a moment? What I love about John chapter 11 is it highlights that if we have hindsight and how often do we come through those moments and look back and we can see the bigger picture and we go, God, I can see what you were doing all the way along. When you're in the middle of that, you can't see that. Lazarus is ill. Jesus is at least three days journey from Lazarus. He's he's a bit over 100 miles away from Bethany at the present time when word reaches him. And he waits two days. Verse 7. Then after this he said to his disciples, I love this part, let us go to Judea again. Now, the context of that is, it hasn't been long since Jesus was at Jerusalem. And last time he was there, they tried to arrest him, they tried to seize him. You can read the account for yourself, but when they sent men to seize him, the the high priest actually sent the temple officials and says, go and seize Jesus. And these guys get there and they go back empty-handed. And then when they're questioned, these guys go, you don't seem to understand. Nobody's ever spoken like this man. They were completely captured and captivated by Christ. (laughs) And he just walks away. And now Jesus says, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, The Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And the next part might seem a little bit confusing, but it's enormously important in light of that question. Jesus answers them, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. last sentence is really, really interesting. The context of what Jesus is saying, what he said there, in uh, direct answer from the comment of the disciples of, are you going to Judea again? These guys are going to kill you. These guys will get hold of you. They wanted to stone you last time you were there. Stoning means something a little bit different today than it did in the first century. But they wanted to stone you. And Jesus talks about walking in the daylight. Now, in the first century, this might shock some of the millennials and the Gen Ys and the Gen Zs here this morning, but in the first century... Uh, the the allotted time for work was when the sun came up and the allotted time to finish work was when the sun went down. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is, just like you have an allotted time of work, just like you have a start period and an end period, and just like nothing in the middle can stop you from your labours or hinder you because you can see with the light of the world, what Jesus wants his disciples to know is nobody, no man, no woman, no rabbi, no high priest, no Pontius Pilate, nobody will thwart or cut short the work of God from his allotted period of time. 
Jesus says, we will go to Jerusalem and nobody will cut my time short. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Interesting terminology Jesus uses there. But I go to awaken him. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, interesting, and for your sake, I am glad. For your sake, I am filled with joy. For your sake, that word glad there speaks of a bubbling joy inside of Jesus. And he says, it's for your sake that I have this joy. Why? Because I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And that whole sentence, this is what I love about when we look at Christ through the Gospels. Often we can look at the surface, but God is always working at a multi-different level. Right now what's happening is... Uh, this event is going to impact his disciples. This event is going to impact Martha. It's going to impact Mary. Believe it or not, it might have a small impact on Lazarus, but it, and it's going to have an enormous impact on the Jewish community because many go out, we will read later on, to grieve with them. Jesus says, I am glad because God is going to so display his glory it's going to cause you to move over here. So far, you've come so far, you've seen some healings, you've heard some of my teachings, but what you're going to see now, this, this miracle, by the way, is the miracle that propels Christ to his Passion Week. This is, this is the straw that breaks the camel's back for the Jews because after this one, after this miracle, many start running after him. They had two problems after this one. Everybody wanted to have an audience with Jesus and everybody wanted an audience with Lazarus. There is still a tomb today, and you can see the inscription if you go to the Holy Land, a tomb today with an inscription above it that says, here lies Lazarus twice dead. Not too many people have got that testimony. So Thomas called the twin, that's Doubting Thomas, for those that are wondering, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now John is beginning to paint the picture of what is coming up and this is enormously important. Why is the four days enormously important? In first century rabbinical teaching, it was held that death was completely irrevocable on the fourth day. I'm not a medical professional and I don't really know. Most people allude to the fact that that's the time decomposition begins to set in, there's a change in the body, etc., etc. But the Jews said they held a superstitious belief, for those that were here last week, but the superstitious belief was that the soul of a person lingered around the body for three days, but once the fourth day came, it was completely irrevocable. This is what I love about Jesus. How often does Jesus step into situations that appear to be completely irrevocable? Can I be honest with you for a second? I'll get back to preaching in a minute. But if I can be honest with you for a second, uh, right now uh, there are emails flying across my desk and there are leaders across the globe and in Australia that are saying, you know what, the, the church of Jesus is shrinking in the Western world. 
They're kind of right, but they're wrong. Uh, the church isn't shrinking. It's exploded in some parts of the globe. But the reality is that when we look across the landscape of the church in the West, they are seeing trends, you know, they're seeing, well, it's shrinking. The institution of the church is becoming less prominent and, and less relevant in, in our current culture. And many people are starting to use the same language that we are reading right now. They're talking of, of a case scenario that's irrevoc- irrevocable. If I can be honest with you now, I firmly believe, and I believe COVID is a tool in the hand of the master, I firmly believe that God is going to move in power across the landscape of the church. It won't be because of any one person. It won't be because of any one denomination. It won't be because of any one church. But God is doing an amazing work in his church. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I do know this. He is preparing the soil of his church in the Western world, and there is a harvest that is coming. It's interesting how circumstances, like maybe what they're facing and maybe like what we're facing, can sometimes shake us. I I remember when I was in the forestry, when we used to do our planting, at the start of every planting season, they would give us the list of all the coops that we were going to plant uh, over the next coming months. And sometimes it was 12, 15, depending on the size. And I would always grab that list and, and for two days I would drive around all of the blocks and I would go up the blocks and have a look and I always would intentionally pick the worst block that I could possibly think. One year, uh, I, I, I picked Camden 9D, and if you live in Tasmania, people go, oh, the contours are that close on the map, you can't see a gap between them. And the reason I would do that was I would start off my crew and put them on that block because the guys I had at the end of that block were the guys I knew I could count on for the rest of the planting season. And sometimes God places us in tough and hilly terrain, and when we come out the other side... So while I'm being honest with you, I'll tell you that God is going to do an amazing work in his church and I have one question for you. Will you be seated in it when he does? Everybody else can say it's irrevocable. Everybody else could say the condition of your marriage is irrevocable. Everybody else could say that condition is irrevocable. Everybody else could say your finances and the condition of your finances are irrevocable. Jesus often has something different to say. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, which was uncustomary. The grieving process was intense grieving for seven days, and in that seven days, after that you would likely grieve for 30 days, but in that seven days you didn't go to anybody, people came to you. Martha is showing an enormous respect to Jesus by going out, She went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here. Well, he's here now. My brother would not have died. Verse 22, but even now, this is a really interesting verse for what's coming up. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Ah. Verse 23. This is an enormously ambiguous statement that Jesus makes now. This could have many interpretations. It could have many meanings. I love how Jesus does this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
And in a heartbeat, isn't it interesting how Jesus knows just what to say to cut right to our hearts and to begin to unearth and unpack what it is that is in our hearts. Uh, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What is Martha talking about? For the fullness of the in-depth of what all of that means, you probably need to come to the going deeper nights when we begin the going deeper into end times. But basically, she's alluding to a belief that was held by the Pharisees, which is correct, that there will be a final day of resurrection and judgment. And what Martha has done in a heartbeat is just recited all of that theology and all of that doctrine. She's like, yes, Jesus, I know that he will rise again. I know that there will be a resurrection. I know that he will be seated with you. I know all of those things. And she begins to spill off everything that she knows. She begins to spill off the doctrine that she's aware of. And in a heartbeat, we can see that what Martha has is an abstract. She knows a lot of facts. She can recite doctrine. Jesus said to her, and I love this, Jesus says, I am, the last of the I am statements, I am the resurrection and the life. Mary, everything that you're pinning your hopes on, all of that doctrine you have, all of the prophecies you've read, all of that, I am the embodiment of that. Or, or, or if that lion could talk, and praise God he can't, but if that lion could talk, he would say, you know what, Sean, all those documentaries you watch and, and, and all of those things that you think are all cool and wonderful, I am the embodiment of that. That's what that lion would say. Oh, everything you watch, everything you know, everything David Attenborough has told you, how many people can go to sleep? Well, David, he, he could put the most fierce baby to sleep with his narrations. But the lion would say, I am the fulfilment of that. And Jesus says, all of your doctrine, all of your faith, all of your belief, you see... Uh, we're going to come to a really important word in the moment, which is believe, and it's not about what you agree with in your mind. It's not about the fact that you can list off doctrines and Bible verses and facts. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am both the resurrection and the life you were raised to. Whoever believes in me, I love these words, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And now Jesus asks her a very haunting question. Do you believe this? Hang on a second. She just told you all the doctrine, Jesus. And so the question that came to Martha in John chapter 11 is the same question that arrives at each and every one of our hearts today. Yeah, I hear all the Bible verses you can rattle off, yes, but there comes a point in time when Jesus stands right before us and says, yes, but do you believe that? And what does Jesus mean when he says that? Uh, it's obvious that when John is trying to tell us something, and it's obvious when Jesus is trying to tell us something, when in two verses, one word is used four times. It's the word believe. In fact, in 21 chapters of the Gospel of John, the word believe is used 99 times and the word faith, believe, is never used as a noun in the Gospel of John. It is always a verb. And John is trying to tell us something with this Gospel. That the journey from here... The journey from facts, the journey from ideas, the journey from doctrine and theology 
is when you flick a switch in your life and you say, I believe all of that. And it takes traction in our lives. Uh, as my dear foster mum used to say, God bless her cotton socks. As she used to say, the word of God must start here, work its way to here, and then eventually work its way to our feet. And believe is when the word of God makes its way to your feet. Let me help try and unpack the fullness of what this word means because it is the method that we are able to step into the fullness of God. And what John wants us to know is believing in Christ is not a one-time thing. Believing in Christ is not you reciting three sentences and calling that conversion. Conversion is a radical transformation of every part of our lives or it's not conversion. Every single person that came to Christ, every single person that was converted in the, in the Gospels and in uh, the book of Acts and throughout the Bible, there was a radical transformation in all of their lives. This word believe is not a one-time thing where we're baptised, not a one-time thing where we say anything. It is about the continuation of our whole life. What John wants us to know is this word believe is speaking about casting the fullness of our trust, the fullness of our reliance and every part of our confidence in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. John says, I've written my entire gospel that you may place your full confidence in him. When John says, whoever believes, that's the same word. What's the best way that maybe we could understand this? The Bible uses, particularly the Gospel of John, it uses another word twice, which is a really, really important word. It's the word called draw. It kind of fits into everything. Uh, Jesus says in John chapter 6, none can come to me unless the Father draws him. And too much theology separates those two things, but they actually work beautifully together. Us coming to Christ but also God drawing us. And there is theology that has been constructed that would say that that word means to drag. That's not what it means at all. What it means is the best way to understand the word draw is courtship, perhaps, uh, what we know as courtship. So so back in the day when uh, John was chasing Pauline, because that's, that's how I was told it happened, and, and John sees this ravishing young New Zealand lady. And that's right. And what he does is he expends all of his efforts, sells his motorbike, gives up everything in pursuit of... That's what the word draw means. It means that God gave up everything he had to win your heart. Here's what the word believe means. The word believe, or basically how we could understand it, was the moment when Pauline was dragged down the aisle. No, come on. When when Pauline walked down the aisle, the word believe doesn't mean I'll go and have coffee with you. The word believe doesn't mean I might catch up with you next week. The word believe is when we stand at the altar next to Jesus and we look him in the eyes and we say, I do. And there's no going back. 
You see, when a man and a woman stand at the altar, that's it. There's no going back. And that is believe. And my heart is, over the course of this year in particular, but our heart as an eldership, our heart as a church, my heart as a pastor, is to move you from dating Jesus. We're all too comfortable in dating Jesus. We'll we'll give Jesus a ring when it suits us. Jesus, why don't we hook up next Sunday? There's nothing on on Sunday. Why Why don't we hook up next Sunday? My hope is that we will move from dating Jesus and that each and every one of us will meet him at the altar and say, I do. I don't know where you are in your walk with Christ, but today you can flick that switch and say, Jesus, I do. How many people know? <laughs> How many married people? Don't put your hands up, men, when I repeat it. Men, keep your hands down for the next five minutes. But how many people know that when you say, I do, that's the beginning of the journey, not the end? How many people know that when you say, I do, life doesn't end, life begins? How many people know that when you say, I do, two become one? The same happens when we say to Christ, I do. Us and Jesus become one. That's an amazing thing. I hope this year, my prayer this year, is that each and every one of us will flick that switch and say, Jesus, I do. I don't want to date you anymore. I don't want to muck around anymore. I want to know what it is to experience you. I want to know what it is to love you. I want to know. If you look down through church history, I love how A.W. Tozer is just so black and white. That's why I read his stuff. But A.W. Tozer says, when we look at all the saints of history, uh, the one thing that differentiates them from many of us is nothing more than the fact that they just love God more. My hope and my prayer is that God would use us here that you would so see Jesus in such a way that you would be captivated with him, besotted with him. The Gospels give us three responses to Christ and there are no other responses. There's no other biblical response to the person of Jesus Christ. Response number one, Many people that encountered Christ were afraid of him and ran away from him. Response number two, many people that encountered Christ hated him and wanted to kill him. But there was a small amount of people that encountered Christ and were besotted by him and cast the fullness of their life upon him. My hope and prayer is that the last one describes you today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would move every single one of us from abstract to adoration. I pray that each and every one of us would meet you at the altar and say, I do. I pray that each and every one of us, Lord God, would understand that belief is a life commitment. 
not a three-sentence paragraph we say. Thank you, Jesus, that you made it possible that I could live and experience and know the presence of God. Thank you that you made the way for each and every one of us. And this morning I pray for every person here, Holy Spirit, that you would place your finger upon every heart, that we may live in the fullness of God that you made possible. In your wonderful name this morning, amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.